Hello, dear listeners. This is Questions of Faith on Radio Maria with me, Tim Hutchinson, who is facilitating today. And this is a program in which you have an opportunity to call in and ask a question. Today, as we so often do, we have Father Toby. Hello, Father Toby. Uh, hello, Tim. And uh, hello to all our listeners. And we also have Joanna Bogle. Hello, Joanna. Thank you. Great. And you can hear me, Joanna. Yes, I can. I'm not very good on technology. My go-to idea is to burst into tears or hit things, and neither of these really work in a radio studio, do they? Uh, sitting opposite Joanna, I can confirm that she's neither crying nor hitting stuff at the moment, so it's all going well. Uh, that, that confirms, yes. I mean, the first time I met you was at um, St. Patrick's Soho, and we had trouble answering your phone. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, well, it's a bit like that with me and technology and all of that. You see, I I don't know. Even when I'm writing, I, I just pine sometimes for my lovely old portable typewriter. <laughs> Gone now. I do work with all the modern stuff, but I don't somehow seem to function very well with it. Yeah, well, that's okay. That's all right. Uh, Father Richard Conrad, who is one of the most saintly friars in the order, the only time you will see him truly angry is with a photocopier. <laughs> and then actually you see a, a side to him which is completely just not there in any other respect. You could be dealing with the, the worst, most entrenched heretic in the world and his, his wrath would be a, a fraction of what it is for a photocopier. And yeah. there's great wisdom with Father Richard Conrad. His <laughs> lectures at Maryvale were a highlight. Yes, well, there we are, you see, and Thomas Aquinas would have used, I don't know, a quill pen. And when our Lord wrote, he did it with his finger on sand. So, golly. There we go. Yes, apparently. The story is with Aquinas, even at some points, that um, apparently he would have multiple secretaries. And because, obviously, he could speak faster than they would write, mm -hmm. he would sort of dictate one, one sentence from one paper that he was working on to the first secretary. Then he would give oh, the second gosh. one a sentence from another paper that he was working on, and the third and the, and, and the fourth, and, 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 and go around in, in circles with that. So, My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. And uh, I know C.S. Lewis really liked to use a, um, a quill that he would dip in the ink. And he said that he didn't want to be able to write faster, even though there were ways of writing faster in his time. He said he liked being able to think between the three or four words that he'd put down on a page. And interesting, like a, a typewriter in a certain sense, um, you know, is not, uh, and, and we inherit the keyboard mm. as it is from that. But it was it was designed to try and stop keys jamming, so you didn't put uh, you, you didn't put keys that uh, were likely to occur um, close to one another, next next to one another. Oh, that's interesting. Um, because obviously, as you know, with a sort of typewriter, if you push two keys that are close, as they they spring up, they can get they can get stuck, stuck up. So the idea of the QWERTY keyboard is not actually for for absolute speed of typing, but rather how to avoid two keys that are that are adjacent coming coming up together as as little as possible. Hence, quote a I I did like my old portable, and I was very very fond of it. A, a gift from my father after my grandfather died. Daddy bought each one of us something really really useful, lifelong useful uh, with with some grandpa's money as a, as a little gift for each one of us. So it had all that. Uh, I have never had a love for my computer in the same way that I did for my grandpop-funded uh, little old typewriter, which also went with me everywhere and all that. I mean, it was heavy. It was inconvenient in that sense. Oh, but 
I do write quickly. I'm a trained journalist and unlike C.S. Lewis, who had a far better brain than mine, <laughs> I was taught a form of speed writing called T-Line. I still use it to make secret memos to myself but mm. when I'm listening to a speaker who is boring. I can write <laughs> boring uh, in a quick way that if the notes are ever seen... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now, we need to get on to some questions, but before we do that, we need to pray. And uh, directly after that, we will be choosing Joanna Bogle, a saint for the year. Father Toby, would you begin with a prayer for us, please? Yeah, well, I'm going to begin with the uh, the prayer taken from Lords this morning for today's saint, uh, St. Elred, which is... Uh, who's a fantastic saint and and particularly um was like the doctor of friendship mm-hmm. in the in the church and as part of radio maria is about building up uh community and and i and i see and i love the friendships that it that it builds up um i'm delighted to to use this prayer oh god who endowed saint aylred abbot of Rouveau with the gift of fostering christian friendship and the wisdom to lead others in the way of holiness Grant your people, we pray, that same spirit of fraternal affection, so that in loving one another, we may know the love of Christ and rejoice in the eternal possession of your supreme goodness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Toby. I do really love um, Alred of Rivo here. Now we're going to be choosing a saint, and I'm shuffling the basket and picking a saint for Joanna. Let's see what we have. Ah, we have Saint Benedict. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Abbot and patriarch of Western monks, Mm. and also patron saint of Europe. Um, I think that Pope Benedict made him patron saint of Europe, if I remember correctly. Feast day is on the 11th of July. So there you go, Joanna. Thank you very much. And how lovely that it's on the Feast of St. Aelred of Rivo. When living in Yorkshire, we came to visit and love some of the great ruined abbeys, including Rivo, the great Benedictine abbeys of Yorkshire. So it's rather nice I've got her. The founder of Western monasticism, Saint Benedict, and I'm given the saint on the day of Saint Ered of Rivo. So that works. Yep. And given and given sort of what you dedicate so much your your writing to trying to do a great restorer of of culture and guardian of culture. Oh, so. yeah. Let's let's invoke him before in my heart. I will do this before mm. programs and before other work this year. Yes, Saint Benedict. Pray for us. Pray for us indeed. It's from John Paul II. Pray for us. All right. So, uh, Joanna, the reason why I brought you on today was because I, although it's perhaps a little bit late as we've just moved into ordinary time, but for some of us, I think uh, Christmas tide does does extend, at least in the heart, to Candlemas. I wanted to speak about a common misconception that Christmas and other Christian festivals for that matter, are actually at their heart pagan. And now I am one who grew up with this idea. I was not allowed to celebrate Christmas. And the reason being, as I said, that it was understood to be a pagan festival that had been dressed up as a Christian festival. And that the date originally was some other um, 
festival that the the Romans celebrated, and then the Christians came along and just um, well, usually had something to do with Constantine busy trying to rebrand things, if you will. And the fear was that underneath what we now celebrate as Christmas, there still lies some of these pagan ideas, and therefore Christians should actually be avoiding doing these kinds of things because they're not truly Christian in origin. I'm very curious if any of our listeners um, have sort of come across these ideas, if any of them hold these ideas, if any of them have, have perhaps heard a rebuttal of them. But I want to start off with with that idea. And I want to ask you, Joanna, have you heard this idea um, defended in that way? Yes, of course, I've heard of it. And the chap who really popularized it in Britain many, many years ago was Oliver Cromwell, who, as you know, made it illegal to celebrate Christmas. And famously, one way of being discovered was that if you were found eating mince pies, uh, I brought some with me into the studio, by the way, because uh, like a lot, of, a lot of other families, we have some Christmas fare left over and I brought some nice sugary mince pies in uh, for us to enjoy. Famously, Christmas was made illegal and the powers that be would knock on your door if they heard sounds of merrymaking. Uh, it's become a joke, but it yeah. wasn't a joke at the time. During the time following the uh, execution of King Charles I, uh, you had the Cromwellian period, a deeply unhappy period in, in Britain. That doesn't make Charles I the best of our kings. But uh, Cromwell really was a misery man and imposed this idea that uh, Christmas was a pagan festival. And it's quite interesting to read up some of the proclamations and uh, documents of that era, mm. but that would be the origin of okay. some... Uh, sects uh, that adopted this. Now, the problem with this is, first, it is a problem because really it is it is all, all wrong. But the essential problem is this. The same God who made all things, called all things into being from nothing in the beginning, was also in the beginning the word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us as a baby. There's something very, very important in our understanding of the Trinity. The God who became man got his job as a carpenter with his foster father. He's that same God who called all things into being. The Old Testament and the New begin with these same words, in the beginning. Now, in the beginning, when God called in thing, all things into being, he made our very beautiful world and our extraordinary, magnificent solar system and so on. And the seasons of the year quite rightly resonate in our hearts with a, a sense of wonder uh, and and, and mystery, how strange it is really that the spring comes, we plant seeds, they grow into crops. There is a mystery. It, it opens our minds and hearts to the mystery of great things. Why are we here? Who am I? What happens when I die? That same God became man and lived among us. So that pagan understanding that there's a mystery about the seasons and the passing. And yes, we understand uh, it gets very dark and cold in winter. We have uh, the solstice. We have the spring coming and the warm weather returning, the equinox. Yes, you could say that's pagan. It's written into us. It's knowledge. And the Roman Empire, long before Constantine, understood that there was not just a mystery about this, but a factual thing. You can measure the months, you can measure the phases of the moon, you can measure the time of day and so on. 
So there is at one level a mystery, at another level a practical thing. And God, Almighty God himself, who made all this, was born among us. When you talk to anybody, or better, listen to some anybody, who has real experience of living in a pagan culture, you understand that what Christianity does is to unlock that mystery in the heart of the pagan belief and make sense of it. I remember listening, it was very touching actually, very interesting, to an African who said, you need to understand we understood there was a mystery about things and we understood that there was a confusion about time and whether it ever came back again and so on. And at mm. the same time, there was a certain order. So, of course, pagans, and especially us here in Northern Europe, we marked the warm days and the cold days. We marked the solstice and the equinox in some sense. Yes, yes, yes. What the arrival of Almighty God himself into the world does is to begin to make sense of this. Hmm. And God is Lord of everything. He can see that among the pagans who are now some of the strongest Christians uh, on the planet are, are Catholic African uh, bishops and so on. They make use of things that were understood, seed time and harvest and gladness and sorrow and death and new life. I mean, they get it. And some of the things they do in different seasons will have origins and things that families have always done. Made new, healed, purified. And that's the same here. Now, Let's get to Christmas, properly speaking. Mm -hmm. The Gospels are detailed historical information. The Bible is a rich collection of many, many books, and that's an important thing to understand. Different authors, different books. Um, I mean, for example, the Psalms are a great treasury of prayer that speak to every situation. And then you have wisdom books and Proverbs and so on. But the Gospels are factual history. Luke, who writes in Greek, gives us a lot of factual information about times and seasons. We learn that there was a census. Now, the Roman Empire was very, very efficient about this sort of thing. And when we hear that there was a tax census, it was there were two that time, and we know who the emperor was, and we're told Augustus Caesar, and we know who the local ruler was, Herod. You had to go to your original town to, for your tax assessment. You know, to be honest, this has a horribly modern ring about it. Have you yet had your email about your tax assessment? Yeah, well, if you're not paying your income tax, you get fined. And your income tax, you've got a number. I can't remember mine, but it begins with YW something, because I remember when I was younger, I thought young woman something, YW, you know. <laughs> right, and it's everything is very, very correct, corrected and checked. And this can be a burden. But it was much more of a burden for Joseph, who had to go to Bethlehem because he was of that tribe and he was registered there. This idea that Mary and Joseph were sort of wandering people, no, he was a respectable carpenter of the house of David, and he had to go and uh, fill in all his civic duties. So we know, that we know about the time and place, the date of Christ's birth. There was so much going on in Bethlehem, he wasn't the only person who had to go there for his tax assessment, that they couldn't get a room at the inn. We're talking here of something that is domestic in detail, factual, historically, checkable, and that really happened. And we know when it happened, because earlier we have heard that in the sixth month, that's going to the Jewish calendar, and it fits in as it happens with the spring equinox, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel had come to Nazareth, a ah. place, a name. It takes nine months, 40 weeks for a human pregnancy. 
Christmas full 40 weeks after that announcement of Gabriel to Mary. Very interesting, the number 40 seems to be written into our human reality. It's the length of a human pregnancy. And there's an awful lot more that, that flows from that. So Mary is about to give birth by December. Are you are you with me? You're counting this up? Yes, and I think I think you should just pause and really emphasize that because the amount of people that I know who will tell you that Christmas the, is just a made-up date. It's is, not. Yeah. First, the date and time of Joseph having to take Mary uh, to, to the, for the tax assessment is, you see, the Romans, they measured time. They were very bureaucratic. They knew what they were doing. The empire wouldn't have functioned without them mm-hmm. being that way. But the important thing about the dating of Christmas is that we not only have Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, we have the whole point about Mary's pregnancy. And the gospel explains that Mary was pregnant, very inconvenient. She was with child. Yeah. The image we have is rather sweet, you know, Mary sits on a donkey. But whether you were pregnant or not, you, you had to fulfill the, the, the law of the Roman Empire. So they did. So all of this is factual. This is documented. This is not a nice idea. And a baby is born when it's due to be born, which is 40 weeks after conception. We, we need to understand that Christmas, as we celebrate and, and enjoy it, obviously happens in midwinter. And we celebrate doing things that are connected with midwinter. Now, you can draw a lot from that, you know, light in the darkness, the Saviour has come. But the plain fact is he was born at a set date and time. There are lots of different ways of celebrating that. And we in Northern Europe celebrate it partly by having light in the darkness because it works. It's the coming up to the winter solstice. And incidentally, the whole calculating of the solstice and everything is very, very interesting. But yes, it certainly is the shortest, darkest day of the year and all that is all very interesting. But of course, we celebrate with that connection. I mean, be stupid not to. I may say the point about Christmas is that it fits everywhere. If you talk to people who grew up in Australia, they'll say, oh, Christmas, the long summer holidays, the out of door time, you know, in the... That was me in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the providence of God, he makes this, you know, everybody rejoices. And I remember some Indian students saying to me, this when I was giving a talk at the University of London about all of this, and very interesting, talking to intelligent young men and women about time, measurement of time, calendars. There was some, a lot of a lot of good research that was going on there. But I remember one Indian girl saying, I just don't get how you celebrate in Britain, because in India, we go from house to house after midnight mass, celebrating, having fun, and here, it's jolly cold, you go home and start having mulled wine, you know. I mean, she was she was just really looking forward to flying home to India for a Merry Christmas. But the point is, no, our pagan ancestors at the time of the darkness and the cold and the solstice, of course, they wanted a bit of good cheer. It wasn't very happy. They didn't know why they were doing it. It was just the natural instinct. But as I've indicated, that natural instinct implies a certain questioning because that makes you think, doesn't it? Light and dark and cold and looking forward to the spring and all that. But we should have no fanciful ideas about how nice the pagan things were. A lot of it was really scary. This modern idea in Britain with paganism being reinvented as all going to, um, what's that? You know, the stones, uh, Stonehenge. Stonehenge, And all eating hummus sandwiches and natural yogurt. It's a load of old codswallop. Um, (laughs) This idea that, you know, that's what it's about. (laughs) I don't want to be rude, but really this is silly. I I know a certain amount uh, about 
folklore in Britain. And one of the things that any serious student of this will tell you is there's a, a lot we don't know. Our pagan ancestors didn't leave guidebooks for her, you know, recipes for, it's just silly. But there was a brutality about this mystery. There was a feeling that the light would come back, but you better help it. Yeah. And th this does not exclude um, if there's a real panic about a food shortage and so on at harvest time. We're looking now another time the of slaughter, if necessary. Mm. The the idea of the grim reaper, the you know who comes at the new year, seems to be connected with the uh, that the the reaping of harvest, which could be grim. Why not slaughter somebody and bury them to make sure, sure. the harvest is yielding? So our ancestry, our pagan ancestors, yes, there's a mystery. Yes, they didn't celebrate it with great joy. But the facts of the Gospels are facts written at a time when everybody understood Roman ruling and Roman law, the incarnation of our Savior, took place in Roman times. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, Britain was part of that Roman territory. Britannia. And the first Christians in Britain would have come through the Roman Empire. Th this idea that it sort of slowly grew, no, it did grow slowly, but through the roots of the Roman Empire, you know, you can see the providence of God in that, that uh, there was transport and so on. Famously, the Romans built the straight roads. We don't know when the first Christians came, but it would have been in the time of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire kept records. That's how we know he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Yeah. That's the name of the Roman governor. Yeah. The time of his birth was Augustus Caesar. You can't say, oh, well, they made that up. No, no. Yeah. And if you are a serious, devout Protestant, you have to take the Gospels really seriously. And if you are a modern, oh, I don't know, I just want a midwinter celebration, you have also to take the Gospel seriously. So there are always going to be two things, if you like, the natural world and our instinctive desire to celebrate in, in midwinter in some way. But the facts as recounted in the Gospels, and one of the things we need to understand is the Gospels are historical and true. The rest of the Bible, and you can't just say the rest of it, it is a rich collection of books producing study for centuries and centuries and centuries. But the Gospels have a particular place as statements of facts. And one of the things that's intriguing is when you go into detail, there's always more to explore. So in the sixth month, look at the Jewish calendar. Luke is writing referring to the sixth month. Yes, that's Mary really interesting. I, you know, because I always thought that that was the sixth month of, of the pregnancy of Elizabeth. I never seen that the connection that you're making now. No, well, there's a calendar connection as well, but it is true that uh, we know that Elizabeth was pregnant, and if you add three months on, you know, to make the forty weeks, you will get to midsummer, June the twenty fourth. And what do we celebrate? The feast of the birth of John the Baptist. Yeah. So Mary goes to see Elizabeth. Yeah, but it doesn't. The the gospel account doesn't start with the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. It that comes later in the paragraph, if you remember that. Uh, yeah. By yeah. way of confirmation of the astonishing news, the angel Gabriel, having revealed to Mary that she's the, to be the mother of the Messiah, goes on to tell her, "Your cousin Elizabeth." But she didn't know that at the beginning. Do you understand me? Yeah. So yes, it is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, but it's much more relevant actually to look at the wider calendar. The, the other thing that's very relevant is about the census is read the Gospels. It, it, it's very important that we understand that what Joseph was doing was something according to the Roman calendar. So it wasn't something that was made up later by Christians. This mm -hmm. is something that 
is simply a fact. If you discover today some document and you want to date it, you will probably find it's quite dated, but it would help you if it had a postage stamp with a date on it, depicting, for example, Queen Victoria. And then if it had got in it something like apostrophe and 40, you would know it must be 1840, not 1940, if they were using a Victorian stamp. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. Yeah. Now, imagine if somebody was writing and saying, during this terrible winter war in the Crimea, that would confirm it. You'd have yeah. to stamp. You know, right. And we talk about the Victorian era. Uh, it's quite useful in Britain. We tend to date ourselves by our monarchs. In the Cromwellian era, Christmas was banned and it came back with the merrymaking of Charles II. But Charles II didn't invent Christmas. Yeah. Neither, Cromwell, did, neither did Dickens, as the, there's a film that's called him the man who invented Christmas. Or, yeah. No, well, he certainly added a lot to our understanding of the merriment that we can enjoy. The Victorians yeah. were publishing books on a big scale because one of the good things of that era was more and more people could read in no small measure, thanks to uh, the Catholic and Anglican churches, which were starting to uh, take education really seriously, heroic work being done. So people enjoyed reading about uh, things and Dickens made use of that, but he certainly didn't invent Christmas. Yeah. And in fact, some of the things that... Uh, we now enjoy belong to an older era and we are adding all the time. The point is that if you are trying either as a modern neo-pagan to say it was originally pagan or as a sincere but, sorry, deeply misguided Protestant, you have to come up against the facts of the Gospels and also the well-known fact, which Dickens also understood. He wasn't a very devout Christian, but he was living at a time when Christianity was understood and respected in general culture to no small degree, mm -hmm. you, have, you, you know that a lot of what we do is rooted in the natural seasons. When your parents celebrate your birthday, they don't think there's anything terribly profound in blowing out the candles on a cake. They will do the candles to the number of years that you were born. So there's a sort of silly folklore in it. But the plain fact yeah. is you were born and they're marking the date. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We may get to a point where you don't put candles on cakes anymore and we do something else. In our family, we had an elaborate thing where my parents had to pretend it was an ordinary day. Nothing special happening. Oh, they thought they remembered there was going to be extra arithmetic that day. And we went through this wonderful pantomime in the morning until suddenly they'd say, if you look behind the wardrobe, there might be a parcel. <laughs> Worked every time. <laughs> but it was just a lovely, silly celebration yeah. of something that really happened. I really was born. And they knew the date. That's a yeah. I think that's a lovely uh, way of putting it into context, and I think these sort of homely examples are always really helpful. Um, I want us to play a piece of music from one of my favourite Christmas albums, um, which I don't think we've played uh, from the last Christmas. So I'm I'm going to sneak it in, and it's uh, Katie Malua's album with the Gory Women's Choir from Georgia. And um, I hope it's not too late to play Oh Holy Night. Is that okay, Father Toby? I think that's fine. I love this setting. And if anybody wants to call in, they're welcome to do so. Um, we did actually have a caller, but then she had to go. Um, and uh, it was maybe she'll have a chance to call back um, in this little time. The number is 01223 375 564. That's 01223 375 564. When we come back, I'd like to talk about the origin of the Christmas tree. I imagine you know that story, don't you, uh, Joanna? Yes, yes, yes. All right. I also have some, something to add about the pagan pagan festivals. Okay, we'll do that as well then. 
Um, but here it is, Our Holy Night by Katie Malua and the Gory Women's Choir. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's Long lay the world in sin and error pining Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth A thrill of hope The weary world rejoices for yonder listening to Questions of Faith on Radio Maria. That was Katie Malua and the Gory Women's Choir from Georgia singing Oh Holy Night. And we've been speaking about whether Christmas actually has pagan roots or whether they are Christian. Father Toby, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, well, just first of all, uh, 
a verse from scripture which i think should always um put us at ease about sort of taking what might be a pagan um custom and uh and and transforming it and incorporating it into our practice of of the faith something which the church has done throughout its history and and normally we call enculturation um st paul in in philippians uh, chapter 4 he writes finally brothers whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things um and we see the the way that sort of where where cultures through uh, the inspiration of the of, of the holy spirit and through a sort of firmer commitment to natural law than say some other cultures um evangelization is easier in those cultures when i visited rwanda um early last year uh was told one of the reasons why christianity spread so quickly and with such ease in in rwanda is because the uh the religion that most people held to there had an idea of there only being one god um and of what you did in this life affecting your life after it so they had they had a belief in life after death and and they had monotheism so the the the, the soil um was incredibly fertile soil for the 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 truth of christianity to take root whereas um shisaka endo um who wrote the book silence he's sometimes known as the the japanese graham green he's a catholic um convert um but one of the things one of the themes in that book is the difficulty of of christianity taking root in in japan because the ideas in christianity are so so foreign to the uh the the the, the ideas which already existed in japanese culture um one thing i i did want to come back to on our our discussion about sort of potentially pagan roots of uh of of christmas um and this idea that uh, i think it's 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 sort of it's worse um the idea that some people have it's not simply that we sort of co-opted a date but rather it's that the even the idea of 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 christ and god becoming man is is sort of stolen um, from the from the the pagans, is that there's just not the historical support um, for it. Yeah. Um, most especially, like the, there are three feasts which people tend to claim that the sort of you know the Christians have nicked and and just turned Jesus into the uh, well into the Christian equivalent of the the Roman god. There's there's Saturnalia, um, uh, but the problem with that is that feast was celebrated on the on the seventeenth um and even though the, it was eventually extended to last an entire week it would end on the on the on the on the 23rd um then you've got the one which i seem to hear most about now is um claiming that jesus was um just a, a kind of a new version of uh of soul in invictus um the problem with that is that the the um the first sort of games recorded uh around uh soul invictus were in 274 and the festival wasn't annual and uh and nor is there any histor historical document as it having been established on december the 25th by aurelian who was the emperor who who introduced um that practice and there is actually now uh, i've i've been reading a, a revisionist school of thought which says that actually the 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 celebrations around soul invictus were moved 
were moved by the Emperor Julian the Apostate um, to the to the to the twenty fifth of December hmm. because the Christian practice was already established at that point, and so he was trying he, trying to actually sort of steal steal from the from from the Christians. And there's there's earlier records of uh, of Christmas being celebrated by Christians on the twenty fifth of December than there is of Sol Invictus being uh, celebrated on the on the twenty fifth of December. Now what the actual way around is, is between those two is is not is not completely certain. But when people assert, oh yes, there was this um feast of Sol Invictus on the twenty fifth of December and uh, you just developed this idea and made it into the person of Jesus. Well, there is just no evidence that that's that that's what's happened. Um, it's what people want to have happened because it helps them to avoid having to actually think about the truth of the incarnation. Um, and as as Joanna was emphasizing um, again and again and again, and it's and it's so important for us that our religion is a is an eyewitness religion. We are not a religion of the of the book. We are a religion of witnesses, witnesses who recorded what they saw in a book. But there's there's the, the, the primacy is is to the is to the is to the witness. Um, and you can and you can investigate the uh, the, the the witness and uh, and come to your own conclusions. Faith is always always a gift, but we can lay the ground for it. And I've I've mentioned to listeners before. Um, Lee Strobel, who was sort of horrified by his wife's conversion, he was a court reporter, and he decided to sort of investigate uh, the truths of Christianity um, using the sort of the, the legal standard which he would do in his court work, and he was horrified at the at the result. Um, and two two good books which you can have a, a look at are um, the the case. I can't remember now whether it's the case for Christ or the case for Jesus by uh, Brant Peter, which is an excellent book, um, and he's a fantastic Catholic scholar. And then there's a there's a little um, book by an excellent evangelical writer, um, Rebecca McLaughlin, um, called "Is Christmas Unbelievable?" Um, and it's only about I've got it here with me. It is uh, sixty three pages, including uh, footnotes, and it's in. Uh, uh, sort of less than A5 size. It's very, very small, but it's very, very helpful. But now we were going to chat Christmas trees. Yes, yeah, that was really interesting. Um, I found that very helpful and certainly confirms my understanding of the way we should see things in, in history. And incidentally, I'm I'm very happy to give talks about this. I, I produced a book on celebrating the feasts and seasons of the year. <laughs> I found there's an enormously interested audience out there, among other people, women's institutes and townsmen's guilds. I mean, we all joke that they all like doing cooking and that kind of stuff, but they're very, very interested in history. If anybody wants a talk on how and why we celebrate the feasts of the year, I'm available. I really am. I love doing it. And I can match it to any bit of the year we're talking about. And I'm really keen. So please, you can always contact me via Radio Maria. I love it. And that includes any group, Catholics, other Christians. And also if you are involved with or you know friends who are involved with some of these other community groups, which often do good work, you know, bringing people together, having an interesting uh, talk. Um, they're often doing some really 
useful work, uh, not only combating loneliness, but, you know, building up a good sense in the community. That's a very Catholic understanding of how we should work. Invite me. I love it. You might get some of those hummus eating druids if you're not careful. Yeah, well, um, th- um, those I'll have an argument with and I can talk, but <laughs> All right, we've only got a... they're not genuine community groups. We have they're a minute not. or two left, so let's get. Oh, okay. let's do the Christmas tree. Christmas tree. Please. The evergreens. Yeah. Evergreen, bit of a mystery, doesn't shed its leaves. And that's why there's a sense in which uh, the evergreen tree, and of various different sorts, of course, particularly in Northern Europe, is a bit of a mystery. There it is, green, and everything else has shed its leaves uh, with the golden and brown, the dying of the year, and it gets darker. So you have the leaves falling off and dying, and you have the darkness coming and all of that. But the evergreen is there, evergreen. Obviously, that makes you think about God, who is always there, life after death. No surprises. Our pagan ancestors, particularly in the German forests, uh, saw the tree, the evergreen tree, as sacred. And the story is that St. Boniface, uh, that's his name in religion, he was Winfrith from Devon, was sent as a missionary. He's Anglo-Saxon, speaking a largely common language. As you know, English has developed and modern German has developed in two directions, but it was all originally the Germanic language to evangelize the people. And he chopped down the sacred tree in their forest. The oak tree. That they'd worshipped. And it, they, nothing happened because God is quite happy with us chopping down trees and provide fuel and so on. Especially when they're being worshipped. Exactly. <laughs> it was a pagan thing. But we decorate the Christmas tree. Uh, we remember St. Boniface and the, de- the tr- tradition of the tree became very popular among Christians. We don't uh, worship the tree. We worship he who made the trees. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in that mix, too, is he who died on a tree for us. Yeah. And then you look further, the scriptures are rich in things like the tree of Jesse and so on. Yeah. So there's a whole lot on the Christmas tree. Decorate it, put candles on it, although... Personally, I'm in favor of electric lights. I really am. I I find the idea of putting candles on a tree nice for five minutes, but then you have to put them out. Why bother? Electric lights, hurrah. We can adapt. And as most people in Britain who are interested will know, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg brought the tradition of the Christmas tree to Britain when he married Queen Victoria. And that was popularized in the Illustrated London News with a picture of a lovely tree and children dancing around it. He didn't invent it. It was from his own home. Mm. And from Chukringia, where they would trail the trees in those days and fly them in an aeroplane. You trailed them behind a, a sledge, as it were, across Germany and shipped them to Britain. That in itself is a nice story. I'm rather a fan of Albert, a good, good man, lots of good social reform, designed houses for the poor. I like Prince Albert, but he didn't invent Christmas trees. What St. Boniface did was to explain you worship God who made the tree, who died on the tree, not the tree. Enjoy Christmas trees. And if you want to keep them up to Candlemas, you can. But I quite like hoovering. Ours is still up at the moment. My husband says you should keep it up till Candlemas. Yeah, but he's a wonderful chap in lots of ways, but he doesn't do the hoovering. And I would just (laughs) like to get the house a bit. I've hoovered all around and everything and pushed around behind the tree. But... Anyway, we're going to have to leave why, it at that. Why are Christmas yeah. trees not very good at sewing? <laughs> why are Christmas trees not very good at sewing? Because they keep dropping their dropping needles. Their needles. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Haven't heard that one. Now, let's, uh, we're going to have to end it there. But thank you so much, Joanna, for coming on Questions of Faith. It's been um, it's been a hoot. And we look forward to having you on Catholic What's On on Monday morning.
Yep, with lots of good things happening in yeah. Britain. I've already got them listed. So if you haven't listened to that before, dear listener, half past nine on Monday mornings, you can catch Joanna Bogle. Father Toby, will you end with a prayer for us, please? Yep, let's just close by giving glory to, to God who gives us all of creation. And if that wasn't magnificent enough, invites us into that divine life of the Trinity. So we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was, As it in, was the in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, well without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.